All right. Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast today with Marco Altini. Hi, Marco. How are you doing? Hey, Jonathan. I'm good. Thank you. Yes, uh, we had to reschedule. Uh, we, we already had it planned, but, uh, you know, due, so, due to some uh, internet connection, bad internet connection, we had to reschedule. But I'm happy that we're talking today. Um, yeah, you know, same. Sorry about that. Hopefully, no trouble today. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so weird, you know, like in, in times when... when Like we, we talk about like all sorts of technologies, you know, and like, I don't know, Web 3.0 and stuff. But then, you know, people that are two people that are both based in the Western world, you know, have troubles to record a <laughs> record a true. podcast because of bad internet connection. That's still still funny, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Still, uh, still a thing, apparently, <laughs> to get a, yeah, a reliable connection when traveling. Always a bit of a headache. Yeah, absolutely. No, but... um. Uh, you know, you are an interesting individual. You're doing doing some great work. I'm happy that we're talking today. Um, you know, we always start the same way in the sense that uh, we would like to know who is it that we're talking to today. So, uh, you know, Marco, uh, kind of as a first thing for today to kick things off, um, you know, tell us who are you? Where are you coming from? What is it uh, that you have done, you know, and uh, what are you doing today? How did you end up there? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So I'm uh, originally from Italy, uh, where I studied um, computer science engineering. I got two degrees there. Um, then towards the end of that process, um, I wanted to get a bit out of there and um, do a study somewhere else, um, you know, learn different things, both in life, in terms of different cultures, uh, as well as professionally with work. Um, it wasn't maybe the best time um in italy in general in terms of opportunity professionally and so i tried to see what i could find elsewhere that's how i ended up in the netherlands uh, about 12 years ago i started working in um, r d institute uh, that was working with the first um, prototypes basically of what today are wearables so we would have these devices to measure the activity of the brain activity of the heart All sort of things um, and as a computer scientist that was maybe used to you know the standard coursework where you would develop some websites or um, you know look at computer graphics at computer networks at security um, just basic programming then getting to work with data collected from the body i think that really triggered um, an interest and something that i found really fascinating and then has been, I would say, the theme for me for the following decade. Um, so it started a bit there. I started doing research in this place, a bit of everything from designing hardware to firmware, uh, basic communication protocols, um, and then moving towards software. Uh, we had these prototypes that were indeed so early that at the beginning we didn't even have applications for them. So we would develop these sensors and then hope that some other partners would take them to market, you know, working with Sonic or Sony or Panasonic or all these Samsung, these larger companies that you know are just consumer electronic companies that indeed today many uh, have some form of, some form of wearables where they can track at least heart rate and things like that. Um, so starting there, um, then I wanted to get to use these sensors a bit more, and there were opportunities where I was uh, doing this research. Um, to do a bit more of that. So do clinical studies with people so that we collect uh, data, for example, during exercise, uh, during maximal tests, or during simply um, stress tests at the office, things like that, so that we could 
trigger changes in physiology, capture them, try to classify different activities, different situations, uh, and do a bit of that. So then I went to do a PhD in that basically. So data science uh, using wearables data to detect um, energy expenditure, mostly um, physical activity, cardiorespiratory fitness, things like that. At the same time, uh, doing the PhD, I think it was um, maybe just, you know, sometimes it's just timing. It was the right time that we had uh, the first mobile phones that could start talking to sensors, not just our prototypes, but commercially available sensors. Because I think until the Bluetooth 4, which was part of the iPhone 4, you could not really even get a chest strap to talk to an iPhone easily. So it was difficult to, to collect data from the body and to do something with that. So it became a bit easier. So I started developing apps as well so that we would not just work on these prototypes, but we could actually build something. I could build something that you know you release on the Apple Store and anyone can use. And that of course is much more powerful than just doing the research on a very small scale. Uh, so that's how I started HRV for training, which is um, a small company that I still run today uh, where we develop technology to measure heart rate variability and physiological stress. Um, that has been quite a process at the beginning, just linking to external sensors, then developing technology that could actually remove the need for the sensors so that you can measure accurately just using the phone camera, which is what we do today. Uh, so I think that was a big step in terms of this um, type of work because it made it very accessible and cheap for anyone to use. So that was um, maybe 2012, 2013. Um, during those years then, after finishing my PhD and ending up um, still working with all of these technologies with a couple of colleagues that were in this R&D Institute, we decided to basically take one of the applications we were thinking was going to be um, important to explore instead of doing this broad research and go deep into one application. And then that's when we moved to Silicon Valley and started a company uh, called Bloom Life to monitor uh, pregnancy, basically. So we developed a new wearable to monitor the activity of the uterus and contractions as you lead towards labor, trying to figure out you know, if there would be complications, if you can detect preterm birth or um, gestational hypertensions, all sorts of issues that maybe with wearables data you can try to identify before or differently with respect to current medical practice. So I've done that for a couple of years as well. Uh, at the same time, keeping HRV for training as a side project until that um, became larger and I decided to focus full time on HRV for training. And that's when I came back to Europe. And then I went back to university again, uh, since I was working mostly with athletes and uh, people interested in sports. I decided that I wanted to get a bit deeper into the background there. So I did another uh, master's in human movement sciences. So basically sports science and high performance coaching, uh, which I did just a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, that was also fun, you know, try to get a bit more into that sort of uh, field from a theoretical point of view as well. And also applied to see how they work since many of them use our technology. Uh, and then back into the technology where I've been developing these tools um, also in the past few years and helping out a few companies here and there uh, recently, Strava, uh, Aura, uh, will make also a ring to measure physiology during the night, uh, working on, with them on 
making the sleep staging algorithms a bit better, uh, communicating a bit better the science behind heart rate variability. And yeah, that's a bit <laughs> what I've been doing. Yeah, exciting. Uh, lots of interesting things. Uh, let's talk about uh, HRV for training. Um, you said at one point it picked up and you decided to go full time into this. You know, what were the reasons for that? You know, like um, heart rate var variability is something that has, um, you know, been been kind of increasing in terms of interest and kind of, you know, focus of, of different companies, but also, you know, in the in the uh, sports industry, you know, athletes um, a lot, um, a lot of, let's say, uh, activity going on there. What, what, what was the reason for, for it to pick up and like for you tend to basically decide, okay, you know, this is actually interesting. There's an opportunity. I should like, you know, go full time into this. Yeah, it's a good question because HRV is actually nothing new, right? It's yeah. maybe 50 years that there is or more that there is the research and papers and everything. Um, I think the technology got a lot more mature um, and also a lot more um, easy to use. Um, things like, again, developing a way to collect the data with the camera of the phone. I think that made uh, yeah a, a lot of difference there because you didn't need to use anything or chest straps early in the morning, which people just don't want to use, especially if you know it's the same that you use when you exercise. It's it's not what you want to do first thing in the morning. That I think opened uh, opportunities, but at the same time, I think the scientific community, uh, which was very skeptical and rightfully so, right? You use all these complex systems to measure electrocardiography and DCGs and all of that. And now, you know, someone comes and says that you just need your phone and place your finger there and did the same. So it needed a bit of uh, a process in which we showed the data, we did validations together, worked with universities and experts in the field to basically simply prove that this was actually the case. And that was really helpful for us. I mean, as a scientist, I always had this, let's say more scientific approach in which the validations and showing the data came first and then um, the growth were, was really organic at that point it was just you know people talking to other people in the industry and you know as a small company you don't need that much right so we started having you know a few thousand users and then 10,000 users and 50,000 users and 100,000 and that's you know it's a good number of people uh, to develop a solid community and to develop the tool if you know you don't have um, let's say if you're happy with that, right? <laughs> you don't always need to take over the world. That's my view, at least. Uh, if you develop, you know, something that you enjoy building and a good community, and there is exciting, um, let's say, exciting opportunities for the future in terms of the research also that you can do at that scale. That again, it's so different from the five to ten subjects that are normally in these pulse science studies. So we can do a lot more interesting things that way. Um, and yeah, at the same time, um, enjoyed building this tool. And it, it was just organic growth for us. And as soon as it was sufficient to um, sustain us, you know, we thought this is not going away. Measuring your physiology you know, can only become uh, more pervasive in the life of everyone because it's simply reflecting whatever is going on from a stress point of view, stress response point of view. Yeah. Um, we saw that a lot these years, right? With the pandemic, it's every two days there is a paper showing that you have data from wearables that picks up COVID infections and things like that. Obviously, getting sick, getting sick or disease is one of the strongest stressors that we face. So that's very obvious in the data. 
but then you can do a little more a little more uh, interesting things i think if we go more into more subtle stressors which can be training or psychological stressors yeah so let's maybe dive a little bit deeper into 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 the product and and um you know uh, what exactly where where did you start with with let's say developing it and how has it evolved and why like what is very interesting in this case is what you said right so you have a community um which is uh, it's it's kind of your niche you know um uh, you you don't need to take over the world but like you create value for this specific user base you know um what what exactly uh, you know, explain the product and, and how it has evolved and what is kind of the outlook there, you know, and how does yeah. it, what, what is kind of the unique selling point that you that you have in that sense? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So with HRV for training, we allow uh, basically anyone to just use their phone to measure their physiology accurately. And in terms of their physiology, we mean resting heart rate, resting heart rate variability. So these are two parameters that are derived from just bit to bit heart rate data. A measurement is taken normally first thing in the morning. So um, that's simply because you need um, what we call the reproducible context. It just means that it's a moment in which you're not affected by too many stressors. Because what you measure when you take this measurement of resting physiology is how your autonomic nervous system is impacting heart rhythm. And that simply means that um, you're basically any stressor would create a difference in there because um, the way the body works when we face a stressor is that the autonomic nervous system adjusts to that stressor, response to that stressor. And you can capture that response in a way that it can become informative because you can, for example, over time, if you do this every day, either with a morning measurement or with wearables today, with something that measures throughout the night while you sleep, also a situation in which uh, you're not facing stressors. Um, you can start to capture changes in response to the stressors you face, things like, again, getting sick, or maybe intercontinental travel, um, alcohol intake, um, intensity of your workouts, or things like, like, like these kind of stressors will have an acute impact, so a strong effect on your resting physiology, heart rate, and HRV. And you can capture that in a way that you can see how your body is responding. If you need a little more recovery sometimes, if you are responding well, to higher load or different stressors because your body is in a good place in that um, time to take those kind of stressors. So you can start to learn a bit from this process. Um, and I think it becomes also very actionable because you do this first thing in the morning, you see how you're standing with respect to your history, and then you can make small adjustments, you know, um, try to limit stressors in days in which there is suppression in HRV, which highlights higher stress. Uh, or the opposite, if everything looks good and uh, you know you're ready to take the day. So that's a, a bit how I would say the concept has evolved. And then over the years, uh, with the users as well as with the researchers uh, developing new techniques or new methods to use the data, uh, the tool has also evolved in this direction. So that, for example, in the very early days, everything was very reactive in terms of HRV and also very simplistic. So um, a higher score, for example, was always considered something that was a bit better because uh, that is highlighting less stress. While over the years, uh, I think both in the research community and also in the people that developed the tools, this concept uh, 
has shifted in a way that is a bit more nuanced now. It's, I would say, you know, for people that are new to HRV, I always use as example, blood pressure. You know, you don't want your blood pressure to be super high or super low. There is that range in which it should be. For HRV, it's similar, but it's even more um, unique to you, meaning that there is not a population range where you should be. It's your own range that you can learn only if you use uh, these tools and measure for several weeks, as a matter of fact. And then you want to be within this range. And when your data is particularly high or particularly low, so outside of this optimal range, that's typically uh, when you want to be a bit more cautious, maybe. Otherwise, uh, yeah, this is, I think, how things have evolved also in terms of uh, what the research has shown and even how to use the data on a day-to-day -day basis, um, moving away from okay, today this is your score and you should do this and more likely uh, to, to shift towards something like, okay, your recent trend is this. So it's a bit of more of an average of what has been happening in the last period instead of uh, very specifically today. And then you take that information, which is then the representative of a bit of a stronger stressor, for example, because it's not just maybe an acute drop because you had a bad dinner yesterday, but it's a couple of days of suppressions in which maybe you know your health is not great. So you make um, you take action and you know you make adjustments when there is something more significant in there. Uh, so a lot of things I think have evolved, also thanks to the technology that allowed the researchers to run much larger studies or to measure on different kinds of populations uh, with respect to what was done before in the lab. You work a lot with athletes um, from, from all sorts of backgrounds, uh, a lot of endurance uh, focused work. Um, you know, let, let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about the, um, how, how does it, you know, actually work in the sense of like, are, you know, athletes approaching you? Where, where is that initial basically touch point coming from? What, how do they discover you? I mean, yes, you, have, you, are, you already have some traction. There's a community and stuff like that. You, you already have thousands of users. Like one of the last posts I saw you uh, you make was basically in front of a uh, or, you know a very famous uh, football club in Europe. So uh, you know how how, the, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So um, I would say, <laughs> interestingly enough, also very organically. Like we never had uh, you know ads or marketing budget allocated for this company. Um, but we were very patient, I would say. It took us maybe 10 years to do something that, uh, you know, for a company with a certain budget can take, you know, much, much less time. Uh, but at the same time, I think this also helped uh, building credibility in certain, uh, in certain fields because, um, you know, research is slow, science is slow, and all this process that took us all this time allowed us to publish a lot, to get in contact with so many of scientists and researchers that we have developed, um, I would say strong bonds there and a solid uh, community, which is difficult otherwise to, I think it's difficult to enter in that world um, in, in other ways, because they are, as, as I said before, they are very skeptical and again, rightfully so because they are thrown uh, any sort of technology every day and you know, everybody wants to work with these people and uh, especially at the elite level you know every day they have new gadgets new things and many of these devices and things they never saw you know a validation even of the accuracy of what they claim they can measure 
let alone using that information to drive behavioral change or to make uh, any change that would impact performance. So I would say there are many factors. One is HRV is a very old concept. So we did not have to prove that HRV is a thing. If someone is interested in the science, there is plenty to read. We just have to prove that the technology now is much easier to use so that it becomes more practical, but the science is the same. Uh, so that was, was helpful um, to go through this process over time. And I think that you know, HRV is also the, the one objective parameter, for example, that is used in research that has nothing to do with sports, like in psychology, where you normally have lots of questionnaires and maybe you measure a physiological response using HRV to some sort of stress. So it's just a generic marker of stress. It has nothing to do with training in particular, but the reason why the, let's say the athletic community is the one that is interested in this or that they are the ones that would buy product or that you know, in general stay engaged with this. I think it's just because they are really motivated and that's why they are all, always targeted um, as a user of these types of technologies because they are the ones that um, are interested in the, the gains you can make but also they are the ones that are motivated to just do the work required to collect the data sometimes. Because now you do have wearables where uh, you don't have to do anything. So you just wear it during the night. But for systems like ours uh, or all the other systems that are there where you need to take a measurement, still you need to do that. And if you do not have some strong motivation, like whatever athletic goal you have. And this is true at any level, like at the elite level and at the recreational level, it doesn't matter. Each person that trains has some sort of goal or interest uh, in, keep, in doing that. They have the motivation you know, to get out and train. Um, and they are the ones that will wake up and they will take their measurement and then they will use this data. And in my experience, um, all other people, <laughs> I would say at this point, are just not intrinsically motivated to do this. Uh, everybody is like, yeah, I should have measured my HRV before I had this condition or before I was really stressed or before I had my burnout. But then nobody does it because when you're fine, uh, you don't have any motivation to do it. And then when you do it, then maybe you just have no idea what would be your value in another state that is not the state that is already chronically stressed or sick or anything like that. So that's where wearables maybe can help a bit. So people can collect some of this data without thinking about it. And you know, you already get those baselines. Um, but otherwise I think the, the athlete of any level is really the person that is motivated to, to look into these kind of things. Yeah. And in, um, in elite teams, typically they have a good staff, right? There is sports yeah, scientists and people yeah. Yeah, that do their research. And that's how we get in contact with them also, because if they do their research at this stage, um, yeah, we come up <laughs> quite quickly because we have done basically the scientific work. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's a super, super important point that you mentioned, which I, which I uh, recently talked a lot about as well with, uh, you know, with people that are uh, in the variable industry, you know, uh, as either as a founder, you know, of, of, of variable companies, because that's like a very big one, right? This, this, this aspect of um, how do you scale the benefits, you know, the obvious benefits, obvious, right? Obvious benefits into society uh, through these products, because, um, you know, as a, 
um we we i always say that so we pay later right with our health we we, we uh, pay later uh we have let's say um you know our 20s 30s two decades of of you know uh almost uh in in most cases you know um we can do whatever we want in terms of our lifestyle you know we will not have immediate effects but those will come after, right? And then oftentimes it's too late, you know, and then people will do everything, you know, they try to change your diet, they'll, they'll go more often to the gym and stuff like that. And those things are obvious, right? Everybody knows that it's not good to drink a lot, right? Everybody knows that it's good to do sports. However, people just have big comfort zones. And, you know, that's that's the entire problem with, with the variable thing uh, or variable industries that, you know, the 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 everyday users, right? Of I mean, just the, the, the studies of showing that, you know, a variable is used on average six months and then on a regular basis and then it's dropped off, you know, that that's a problem, especially in the data collection side. But then it's also a it's a societal problem in the sense of the impact of the, the products. Right. So because yeah. like a big one is, for example, Apple, right, the Apple Watch. Everybody, why do why 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 is Apple Watch so successful? It's not so successful because you know people are so amazed about all these you know nice data points in their health app and stuff like that. No, it's because it's an Apple product. Yeah, exactly. Actually, it would be it would be probably the same number of sales or ninety nine percent of the sales if you had absolutely no way to track anything related to health in the Apple Watch. Absolutely. But, you know, um, how do you, how do you think about that? Do you like, do you, uh, do you also like when you, when you think about your product, right? Do you see it like um, saying like, okay, this is our niche, right? So we, we will serve scientifically and we will develop our product for, you know, the users that have this incentive, AKA, you know, it's their job, right? To, to improve their, uh, their health or their performance. Is that your niche? Is this kind of your vision? Or like, how do you, you know, you said like it took us a while, right? Because we we, we grew organically, we bootstrapped 10 years it took us, you know, to, to build up the credibility. We are backed by science, et cetera. But like, how does, how does your vision now look for the next couple of years, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, you make great points. It's, uh, it's difficult in some cases, I think, when I look also at wearables, um, some maybe try to do too much. Uh, what I mean is that not even just the wearables, but even all these platforms you have that now that um, aggregate data, for example, from different uh, sensors and different things and try to provide you with insights. Also, I, I don't see um, many of them, you know, uh, resolving the issue in which uh, you would stick to using them for, for longer than a couple of months. And often, that's because um, they are not very specialized in a way that everything, like I understand the, the idea of aggregating right, uh, information from multiple sources because then you have the full pictures uh, and so on. But the issue is actually that you don't have that. It's a, an illusion that you can get that kind of information because you always miss context. And context is what only the person that is tracking knows. They know how they are feeling. They know what they are doing. They know if they have some stressful event that is not something that the wearable can track. Think about anything that is psychological stress. And you know, if something is going on, I don't know. You're getting a divorce, or uh, you know, you're having your child, and you know, anything like that. It's like enormous life events. 
And no matter what you aggregate in all of these variables, they have no idea about any of this, basically. And that's why it becomes so difficult uh, to engage. And I think that some tools are getting a bit better at that. So they start to understand that it's not just the measurements and what you track, but the user needs to be in this loop in which they provide this information, which yes, can be used by the company to maybe build some better analytics or to do research and so on. But in the first place, it should be just for the user to be able to use their data a bit better to provide the context that they need even to explore how these things change over time. Because you know, if I ask you next week, uh, how you were doing today and what was happening and all of that, you will remember maybe 5% of that. So even for, for us, we need uh, ways to track uh, how things are going outside of the physiology so that we can contextualize the physiology and make use of that. So I think there, um, some of the tools are getting a bit better. It's not anymore just you know counting steps like Fitbit or recording heart rate. Eventually that was that's what it does more or less and trying to um, just show you historical data of these changes without again absolutely any context around it. But it's getting, it's getting there with tools like Aura or Whoop where I think they make a lot of effort um, you know, to make you journal things. And you know, we have also in our app questionnaire that you fill in after the measurement where you would report things about lifestyle and psychological stresses and so on. I think those kind of things um, make people stick to the tools uh, a bit more, engaging a bit more with their health um, in a way that it can be uh, a bit more long-term. In some other cases, I think it's totally fine if people don't stick to the technology, if they learn and change their behavior. So it could be that, that is also the case, right? Many people that get to um, use these wearables, in particular, when it comes to HRV or these apps, um, they notice one of the most striking aspects for them typically is alcohol intake, right? As you said, it's obvious. But then when you see that it's such a dramatic change and you know your heart rate is 50 and then you drink a bit too much and then it's 70. I mean, it's fairly obvious that that's an enormous change, especially when you look at that with respect to all the other days in which the change might be you know, from 50 to 52 or 48. So that's a normal variation. And then it gets 20 bits higher. And it gets so high only when you're sick and basically when you drink. So some people then start to learn that and use the data in a way that you change your habits and you don't need the data anymore. Sometimes for some stressors, it is that simple like alcohol. For other stressors, it's a bit more complex because you, know, you might have more chronic stressors that start to you know, creep in slowly and very slowly affect your data in a way that you cannot really capture it that way. So, that's why I think the longitudinal monitoring can always be helpful. Uh, and there are always you know, unexpected events in life. So that's when these things become even more useful. But otherwise, there can be also some situations in which uh, yeah, reduce, uh, let's say a reduced lifetime or engagement with the product would still be uh, hopefully uh, helpful at the individual level. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, you know, let's let's look uh, from a business perspective. Um, I, just like for me to better understand, um, uh, you know, your company. Um, how does the business model look uh, for you guys? Like, uh, how do how do you make money? And then, basically, transitioning to that, how do you, you how do you see your company now in the next years? You know, from a business perspective, like where 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 are you going? Like, what are you aiming for? 
Yeah. So our business model is pretty simple. We have a paid up so that uh, yeah, our tool needs to be purchased. It's cheap, but still it's 10 euro or $10. So um, sales is what drives uh, most of the revenue. And then we have um, a web platform, which is what is used by basically whoever is coaching athletes or um, for us, actually a lot of by universities that use the platform for research. That's a big part of the clients we have. And that's a subscription subscription model, um, as well as for, uh, let's say, a bit of a more advanced user that wants to use also the web platform and some additional features. So they also have uh, the possibility to have this subscription model, which is um, basically yearly based. Um, and that's how most of it is, uh, is driven. Um, we do also, do, uh, since we have all this, technology that we have validated. We also do licensing of the technology with partners uh, that are interested basically in embedding it somewhere else. Because as we discussed, you know, you can measure physiology for a number of reasons. And still as a small independent business, we focus on one application, which is typically exercise. And while you can use the tools for research, then many other companies and startups might want to measure physiology for very different reasons. Uh, they could be into, um, I don't know, mindfulness, meditation, it could be into psychological stressors, it could be into monitoring chronic disease. Uh, so we can also license our technology, which also obviously helps our business um, to grow in different ways. Uh, I would say that's mostly uh, where we are at today. Um, in terms of where we are going, I think we plan to keep doing this. And at the same time, um, I think now that measuring is a bit more um, established, meaning and mature, right? There are many different ways and tools to measure physiology. And we are doing that a lot in the past few years. I think what we are not doing much or, or what we don't know much about is how we can influence our physiology. So can we do something um, so that we are not in this state or we get in a better state? Or can we recover faster after an event that we know suppresses our physiology significantly? Um, all these interrelations between stressors and in the acute sense. So I exercise today and that obviously as a negative, so to speak, uh, effect on my physiology, but that in the longer term, that will bring a positive effect on my physiology. So how do we understand the uh, relationship between the two uh, in a way that we can maybe foresee what kind of stimulus I need to get to a certain point. Um, and I'm thinking also, if there is a lot of uh, talk about uh, breathing techniques, for example. Um, and anything that is mindfulness or meditation or deep breathing or any sort of uh, that type of exercise that is supposed to stimulate, for example, the parasympathetic system. So again, something we capture with HRV. And we know that as you do it, you have large changes, but do they last? Like what can we do to make actually a long lasting change in your baseline physiology? I think those kind of things are more the doing some, the actionability of it and potentially influencing uh, your data or better understanding the short and long-term impact of different stressors, in particular exercise in this case, I think are some of the areas that we try to explore, both in terms of research and in terms of building tools for people to try these kind of things.
Yeah, so, you know, one of the big uh, downsides with a lot of the digital health, um, you know, uh, apps, you know, applications or tools, also with the variables, for example, right, is that um, we're always kind of, uh, you know, um, in, in some sort of a weird place of pseudoscience, you know, where it's, you know, it's labeled as a consumer product, you know, I mean, best examples for the variables, right, I mean, they're they're being sold as consumer products is but that's just because it's super it's a super long and hard process to be, become a medical uh device right but on the on the let's say digital application side of things right um it's the same thing right so with with all these um you know mental health apps and all these you know 380,000 or plus apps that you have in the app store you know which are all some sort of digital health uh, application you know only uh, how many of those are rooted in science right and so i think one of the one of the one of the questions that that uh, you know I, I wanted to ask you is as well how do you see that basically for you guys because you seem to be kind of deeply rooted in science you know so you you, you come out of science how do you see that basically for you to also develop uh, you know and then from a legal perspective as well to get into the state of you know, we have been collecting this very qualitative data, right, for for some for some years. Okay, so we we do have, let's say, a good good data pool, right? And we 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 do research on this, right? And we we have findings, and then we can validate things, right? We can actually start to make recommendations, which are based, you know, and backed up by science, right? Be, because this is the ultimate value, right? Because if you're just putting an app in front of me, right, as with everything, and I'm just like, you know, um, doing something, but you, we, and, and that's a funny thing, right? Everybody, like all these companies, which are also very big, big funded, right? They get a lot of funding. They never claim, right, to say like, yeah, you know, we are doing a health recommendation, right? Because just because they cannot do it. <laughs> yeah, true, true. And I think um, here, now it's the years in which we have basically a complete mess in terms of um, how the data is being aggregated and reported to the user. Um, maybe this will be different a couple of years from now. Uh, and it was different a couple of years ago, meaning that before it was the data and that was it. It was your heart rate or your HRV or your steps and things like that. And right now, even like it's one of the main challenges is that it's not that even if you pick a specific tool, it's not a good tool or a bad tool. And it's not either scientific or not scientific based. It's really blurry because there can be some things that are based on science and accurate and validated. For example, one of these wearables might measure heart rate and are variability very well and correctly, but then when they report something to the user, that is not, for example, what is reported. Maybe they come up with a custom score and all companies now do that. They call it readiness or recovery or body battery, or you know, there's all sorts of these scores. And these scores combine, as a matter of fact, the physiology with behavior in most cases. So it becomes very challenging. First of all, you cannot validate it because there is no reference, right? What is true readiness or recovery? There is nothing like that. So that is, let's say that leaves uh, a lot of room for 
development and also interpretation of these kind of things in a way that is difficult to be taken seriously. Um, because again, we don't really have a reference for that. We don't really have context. We don't even know, you know, what are we supposed to be ready for or recovered from. Um, the mix of behavior and physiology, I think, is what um, remains challenging. And one of the reasons why we don't do it is that I do not think that that's, I understand why people do it, but I do not think that that's what we want to get from these tools. And I will try to clarify that um, if we mix the two, then when you do more exercise or you sleep a bit less, you're always penalized by this kind of scores because those are, are supposed to be things that require recovery, for example. But then your own physiology might say otherwise. Maybe your data is exactly as normal as it can be. So that type of stressor did not impact you. So what are we doing here? If we are using behavior to tell you something that you know already because that's what you did, uh, but we are not using it to tell you how your body responded to that stimulus, then I think it becomes very difficult for these tools to get closer to anything uh, medical or scientific because we are simply you know, throwing things in there and building these algorithms that might um, help someone if the type of data and parameters and how they are weighted together is in line with your life and your behavior and how you respond to these things. But still, uh, they are just generic approximations of what we think might be better or worse recovery or readiness and not necessarily a representation of your physiology. So that I think is one of the challenges right now. And every day there is new company adding a readiness score. Uh, I think Fitbit just added it like a couple of weeks back maybe two months ago. Uh, and we know that Aura and Boop have one and Garmin has one. And all of them have these scores. None of them agrees because the parameters in there are all different, even though the physiology below might actually be measured in the same way. So I think there now it's really very messy. And hopefully, you know, once we go through this phase and consumers also respond to this phase, uh, because you know these are the people that use it, and then eventually uh, this also will, will drive some of the changes that will come next in a way that hopefully gets um, yeah to a bit of a different state in which we can maybe take a step back and look at the different pieces of information separately. Um, sometimes aggregating data gives again this false uh, yeah this false illusion that you are getting more information, but you are actually getting less because if your score is lower, does it mean that your body is not recovered or does it mean just that you did a bit more? It's sometimes more useful to just to look at the individual information and separate behavior and physiology. So I think there is where now there is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of confusion also on how this impacts the person, right? Psychologically, seeing this type of data will have an impact. You see a negative score, you might feel worse than what you actually would be if you didn't see that. Absolutely, that's some, that, yeah. you know, interrupting your that's a that's a big one. You know, like I, I um, there, there, that that's actually a very very interesting one uh, to 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 argue about the, the fact whether you need a screen, whether it's a good idea to have a screen uh, for for a wearable, right? To to send notifications 
um, you know, false negatives, basically, uh, or let's say, no, not false negatives, false positives in that sense, right? To to your um, to your user, right? Who who yeah. should who should actually look at that, right? Who should start in, like who's interpreting the data? Like whose job is that, right? Because if I'm gonna tell you that uh, you know your uh, resting heart rate is, is you know was below 30 <laughs> for the past nine minutes <laughs> you know obviously you're going to be freaking out because like you know what is that <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i think uh, there is a lot of psychological components there that are not being unpacked just yet but yeah. you start to see that more and more because more people use these things and yeah. you know sleep is another one right people that sleep okay maybe and then their sleep score again something that also has no scientific basis because there is no such thing as sleep as a sleep score uh, as the ones yeah. that, you know that wearables provide yeah. um, will impact you you will feel you sleep worse and you know you will feel less maybe energetic for that day all sort of issues there um, but i think yeah who develops this technology needs to think um yeah, hard about how the data is presented, what it means. I think as users, we need us to think about this. Um, and I understand that sometimes, you know, these tools are built also for engagement and to keep you using the app and go back to the app and things like that. Uh, but despite, you know, obviously thinking that these are extremely useful tools because these are also the things that you know, I build. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't otherwise spend my time like this, but still, I think that we need to take a step back uh, a bit and try to look at the big picture and not get too caught up into the day-to-day -day, um, right. variations and things like that, right? As we take a step back and, and look maybe at the week or the longer term, how things are going, uh, yeah. combine that with how we feel, I think then we can make good use of this type of technology. Yeah, good one. Hey, uh, Marco, you know, I think this is a good good way to end the podcast. Uh, it was really incredible to have you here. You know, thanks for, for, your, uh, for your view on things. Thanks for giving us an insight into, you know, what you're building, what you're working on. Uh, I wish you a lot of success, you know, uh, with, with, with HRV and, and the next phase you guys are going in. And, you know, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was great being here.